Are we on there, Dan? There, lovely. Okay, welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, Chris is taking tonight, which I'm very, very grateful because I know it's not easy. Um, but yeah, I think um, uh, in the context of, of rebuilding what we believe, it's, it's, it, it, you, you can't really do that without some context of how did we get where we are. And, uh, you know, it's, um, some people think, oh, why do we have to bother with history or influence and impact? But the truth is everything in life is, is affected by that. And we, we then do what we do as a result of some understanding for, for, for what got us here, how we arrived here. And, um, I mean, Chris and I have some long conversations. I mean, it's not unusual for us to, to have a five-hour conversation um, uh, which can get fairly heated at times, mostly because I'm right and she's wrong and she won't, she won't give in. Um, but um, but it, it's all good because we are, we are so keen to, to not only evaluate where are we now in what we believe and, and why do we believe what we believe, um, but to also not just, because we are reshaping our understanding to just take for granted and without question anything that, that we receive. Because it's easy, if you're saying we don't think it's that, it's very easy to be influenced by just something else. But, but we're trying to put everything through the same rigour uh, and measurement. One of the things I've said to Chris is, is I struggle sometimes with some understandings because I think people take... You know, I've said to you before, uh, one of the things I learned was if you look at scripture backwards so from where we are you work your way back so you work your way back through recent history church you know your own experience uh, recent history church history uh, and 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 then you get back to the you know the epistles and Paul and all those people then you get back to Jesus and what tends to happen when you do it that way you carry that 21st century understanding and you superimpose it on the on what you're trying to then understand and then you bring that back and of course it's already been tainted and um, the same thing can happen the other way that um, I don't specifically, Chris and I differ a little bit on this, but I don't specifically um, believe per se that the Bible narrative is about the Jewish nation. I just think the Jewish nation are the major player in a narrative but the narrative is not actually about them. The narrative is about all of us and it's about the stage in which God has to use a stage to, to play out the thing so that we actually can get an understanding of it. And, of course, what's interesting is you don't actually have a Jew until Judah and you don't have an Israel until Jacob. And um, a good half of the, new te- of the Old Testament story occurs before Jacob. So you've got, you've got uh, 2,000 years at least of history before you get to Jacob, which was not Jewish history because you also didn't add a Hebrew. But what you had was, was the story unfolding. And of course, at the center of that story, uh, Israel and the Jews become part of that story. But, but that is not the story. So for me, what we're doing is really important that we take all these elements and analyze them and have a look at them. Because, um, uh, you know, we, we want to really know where does Jesus fit um, on, the bigger, on the bigger picture and also... Uh, for us, and so how we now the narrative fits together because I think one of the things is if you 
If you can catch the trajectory of something, which you can only do by going back to the beginning and looking forward, that's the trajectory. Um, what it does, it, will, it helps us to decide what is the ongoing trajectory. What is, what is the ongoing motion of this? And um, if, if the truth that has been revealed to us, in us and for us, is an evolving, ongoing revelation, then we have to be in that trajectory that says, even now, in our time and in our space, we are, we are part of that evolving, that evolving story that is, that is God, the Father, and the world, and us, and Jesus, and all that that fits, but coming down to us now, you know, the, us being the temple here. So, so I appreciate Chris taking this on and bringing another perspective on it, and uh, I just pray the Lord will let us have ears that hear and eyes that see. See, once he starts, he could keep going, couldn't he? I mean, just he gets going. I'm thinking, you're saying what I wanted to say. What are you doing? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that he was just saying there was about, how, you know, how did we get here? And uh, that's a, a question that really does motivate me. I want to know, you know, what are the, the unfolding steps? Uh, and a few weeks ago, you know, I was talking about how... Um, you know, I put it on the board, probably should have had the board now when I think about it, uh, to talk about how, um, you know, the journey up to um, Jesus and, and the cross and the little bit of time that there was in the very first few years of what happened after his death, something incredible happened there. But within 300 years, it had gone back to being incredibly pagan and, um, you know, lo lost that spark that had been created uh, with, with Jesus. Now, last week I thought was brilliant because um, Anth was talking about, you know, the encounter that um, Peter had with Jesus when he said, who do you say that I am? And I thought that he brought uh, a great um, account, wherever you want to call it. It was great, and I was glad that quite a few of you uh, enjoyed it. Now, I don't want to mess that up tonight by what I'm going to do, but um, I mean, I am going to offer a, a different perspective. Um, something that Anne said uh, a, a bit ago, a few minutes ago, he was saying that, um, you know, it's not just about Israel because there is a, another story that's running through it. Uh, and I, I think I agree, <laughs> but then there are times when I read things that could be very, very clear um, that actually it is a Jewish story and somehow uh, Christianity took hold of it and made it theirs. Now, I know that sounds really weird and I don't want to offend anybody. I really don't. But if we're talking about perspectives, then this is one of them. And it's not just something I'm making up because actually you can find, uh, you know, we talk about there being 30,000 denominations well each of them has a perspective and um, you know the, there's ones that basically they're called Israel only that basically it was just for Israel and when Jesus came uh, he fulfilled the law etc etc and that was the end of it all and since then nothing matters and anybody who's taken up any other idea is just daft I mean, that's these Israel-only people, and I'm not saying whether they're right or wrong. I'm just saying that's, that's the case. Uh, there's another group that's called um, the re Replacement Theory People. Uh, who's ever heard of the Replacement Theory People? Oh, really? Oh, this is going to be fun. 
sorry, I will get settled and I won't be so thirsty. But when I start, I'm always so nervous, I promise you. Um, so there's the replacement theology people who believe that basically because Israel would not accept Jesus, and I'm giving you very basically here, so if you want more information, we can give you some, but I'm keeping it quite uh, contained. Um, but because Israel rejected um, God's word and then his, then his son, that basically they were uh, rejected and the Gentiles are then the ones that got a look in. And so everything that was meant for, the, for Israel, we got instead. And the Israel, uh, Israelites, they can come in if they want to, but they're going to have to come in sort of after the Gentiles, if you see what I mean, rather than being the Israelites first. Have, you, have none of you heard from that? No? You have. So anyway, that's replacement theology. And um, uh, there's, there's all sorts of differing uh, ideas. And um, sometimes it's really hard. We've talked about it before, about uh, the preterists. Uh, I don't know whether you recall that. I put it on the board once when I was speaking. Because it, was mem it wasn't memorable. <laughs> but about the fact that there are people who look at the Bible and they say that all the prophecies that were made uh, have already been fulfilled and there's nothing to be fulfilled because it was all fulfilled in Christ. And so even the book of Revelation, which most, or quite, a, no, I shouldn't say most, a lot of believers believe is in the future and this is all the stuff that's going to come to pass about the end times isn't about the end times at all it's actually already taking place and I can give you scripture after scripture to tell you that that has already happened but then of course there are the futurists who believe they still all to come to pass and that's why you get a lot of people preaching end time theology that's why the forever giving prediction dates of when the second coming is, is going to happen, you know, when the war's going to happen in Israel and Russia's going to do this, and because it's all the end times that's going to come to pass. All of that is, is part and parcel of it all. And sometimes you think, heck, we've got it buttoned down. But it's all because you don't know anything about any of that stuff. It's because we've just been fed a very, very narrow uh, understanding and... Um, you know, it, 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 it can be, uh, yeah, it can be daunting. And even when you start to read into all this stuff, sometimes the question is, well, does any of this matter? Well, I, I don't want my life to be a waste. I'll be honest with you. If I've given myself to believing in, in, in God, the Father, and His Son, and the Holy Spirit... I do at least want to feel I've got a handle on it. I'm 60 now and I think I've, I might just get it sorted by the time I die, but I'm, I'm trying. And uh, the question that, that came up, they said, who do uh, men say that I am? This was the question that Jesus asked of Peter. And of course, he said, well, some say you're this, some say you're that. And of course, the corker comes when Jesus says, says to him, um, who do you say that I am. And um, of course, I loved what I said last week, that actually Jesus is not pushing for an, an answer that is, is, is in his heart that he's saying, you must answer this way, or, you know, you're getting the answer wrong. He's letting him come to his, uh, his own conclusion. Now, let me just say at this point that that question for Christianity is probably the core question 
Because it really is to do with who do we say that Jesus is and the whole emphasis is on him being the son of God and and given to us as saviour. Now, that mattered massively because it, it, it fitted with a, another part of the, the issue that if we had a sin problem, then the only way that that sin problem was going to be dealt with would be by a perfect sacrifice. And so you've got Jesus, son of God, the perfect sacrifice, then giving his life in order to be the answer to our sin problem. And you couldn't have that by just an ordinary person. It had to be somebody who was, you know, the the perfect offering. I hope you're you're hanging with me here, aren't you? So, of course, the answer to the question, who do you say that I am, was massively important. Because if you didn't say, you're the the son of God, the the, the Christ given from God to be my saviour, then you would be classed as not saved, wouldn't you? You're getting that? But you see, of course, now we've moved from the place where we haven't got Jesus uh, potentially fixing a problem, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that if I've, if I've time, if I get on with it. Um, and, and it's more to do with an understanding of the revelation of the Father that maybe we'd lost sight of. Um, the question comes, does it, does it matter what I believe about Jesus? Now I say I'm already cringing because I'm thinking, what, what are you all going to think of me because you think I'm a heretic? Actually, I'm not. All I'm trying to do is just put it in to some perspective. Because you see, when all said and done, when Jesus was asking Peter the question about uh, his understanding of who he was, the actual said you are the Christ, the son of the living God, didn't mean, and I'm getting to it straight away, didn't actually mean that Peter was saying that he was God equal to God. Because son of God meant just purely an emissary. It could be a prophet. Um, It could be uh, somebody just having a special call on their lives. Because actually, the term uh, just meant Messiah, And remember that for the Jewish people, the Messiah wasn't God. The Messiah was a man and who was going to come and fight the the oppressive army of of Rome. And the term also had an association with kingship because of King David in the Old Testament. And it could also mean adopted servant. So a prophet was an adopted servant. So God would adopt a servant and call him his son or he would appoint a king and call him his son in order for things to be achieved uh, in in the land so is it could it be possible and you see again I'm, I'm saying possible that when Peter was asked this question and he came back with you are the Christ he was saying you're the Messiah king that has been chosen by God to drive out the Romans There is no sense in that he is saying you are actually equal with God. Now, if you think about it, where we have been brought on our journey is that we understand Jesus not only to be the son of God, but actually equal with God. 
and so is the Holy Spirit equal with God, which we'll get to in a little while. Equally, the term the kingdom of God, which used to be spoken about on a regular basis, and Jesus used that term regularly, was in fact the reiteration of the messianic uh, understanding that the Messiah would come from that line of David. He would basically take up the throne of David. He would sit on that throne. He would rule with righteousness and world peace would come and everything would be okay. Because you see, God chose David for himself And so that's why him as king uh, and the kingdom was called the kingdom of God. Makes sense, doesn't it? This is my king. Uh, You're going to rule because you're going to be under my direction. And therefore, this kingdom is going to be called the kingdom of God. Now, according to some, uh, well, let's, let's, it's not according to some actually this bit. This only applied to Israel. It didn't apply to any other nation. The Messiah was purely for the Israelite people and the Messiah was going to basically uh, be the one who would sort out all the problem that was going on. And if you think about it, going back, the Israelites had suffered uh, so much oppression. They'd been in exile in Egypt. They'd been in exile in Babylon that were now under the oppression of the Romans, as far as they were concerned, come on, God, what are you playing at? We want our Messiah. And they were longing to be freed. And it was purely a earthly uh, deliverance that they were looking for. Not a spiritual, spiritual one, purely uh, an earthly deliverance. Now, um, the first uh, believers, you could say, Uh, of Jesus were these messianic Jews because they believed that Jesus had arrived and he was their Messiah. Now there was a whole bunch who didn't but there was a whole bunch that did. Now there's examples of this uh, as you go through scripture because in Matthew 15 um, when Jesus uh, comes across the, the Canaanite woman and I hope you have some recollection of some of the stories in the Bible. It'll just save time. Um, When she came to him and said, um, you know, my daughter's sick, will you you heal her? Um, He answers and says to her, I cannot help you because I've only been sent to the lost tribe, uh, lost sheep of Israel. Now, that's a strange thing to say. I mean, is Jesus messing around or, or does he mean it? I'm only, I've only been sent to the lost um, uh, sheep of Israel, which basically as Jesus was saying that, he was highlighting the fact that he was saying lost sheep need a shepherd. Um, that's what the Messiah basically was meant to do, to gather those sheep as prophesied. And you can look in Jeremiah, you can look in Ezekiel, you can look in Micah, who talk about the Messiah as being the shepherd that will gather the sheep. So the point being is declaring himself basically the fulfillment of the prophecy. And it seems that the woman actually recognises this by how she addressed him. She said, Lord... Son of David, she was recognising that in her mind, 
Now remember, this is a Canaanite woman, not an Israelite, but she's recognizing him as the Messiah. And because of that, he said, he didn't say to her, no, I'm not, or whatever. He just said, great is your faith. And her daughter was healed. Now, what was interesting about that, I wrote it on a, another piece of paper. Isn't it interesting that if the woman had needed to know that he was God incarnate to be healed, she maybe didn't know that. But because she recognized him as the Messiah, she was, because great was her faith. That's all that she was expected at that time to know or understand. And her faith made her whole. And I, I think that's great. Now, was Jesus rejecting the Gentile nations? No. But he was actually seeming to set a priority of his ministry. He's saying, I've come, to, I've come for Israel. Now, I started by saying there's a bunch of people out there who believe it's Israel only. This is one of the scriptures that they use because they say, there you go, you see, I've come for the lost uh, sheep of Israel. Um, then we can go to Matthew 10, 5, 6. And Jesus says this in another occasion. He says, says to his disciples, do not go by the way of the Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. Basically saying, narrow your focus to those who are what? Expecting the Messiah. Go to them. Give, you know, bring the message to them. And another example is that in Romans 1.16, it says that Paul preached to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So it seems that there is this angle that there was a, a very special ministry to the, to the Jewish people at first, or as some would say, that's how it was meant to be. I hope I'm making sense here. So anyway, by about the year 50, this is after Jesus had died, um, a great big chasm has grown um, because Jesus had been brutally crucified and in some camps he's been basically called the failed Messiah because the Messiah wasn't meant to die. He was meant to do his thing, you know, deliver the people from the Roman oppression and you've got this problem. If he was the Messiah, what on earth has happened? And you can imagine when Anne said last week about the, the, the two lads on the way, you know, to Emmaus. Their hearts are absolutely broken. He was meant to be our Messiah. And that's what they had seen. That's all they had understood. He was meant to be the Messiah. Now, I agree with Anne. There's a thread that runs through. But I'm just giving you this perspective at, at this moment. Now, the revelation of the Father that Jesus revealed in many ways had proved there was no power, there was no control, there was certainly no empire at that time and therefore in many ways wasn't very um, appealing and you can imagine there were people who were, you know, not quite um, as enamoured by it as they were originally and um, but many people of the, that group still actually believed that when they heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, actually continued to believe, well, it's okay, everything's going to be all right, because 
Our Messiah now has, has risen, therefore there's still the possibility of the kingdom being established, and so everything is going to be okay. Um, uh, but in fact, we've got to add a little bit of a twist on this as well. If that was the case, if they followed what Jesus had said, it was all going to take place in their lifetime. It wasn't something that was way in the future. Jesus had, had made many comments, especially in the book of Matthew, where he's saying, you know, some of you will not have, 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 have died before this is going to come to pass. And he's saying, you know, be careful about what's going on because, you, you, you know, you better keep your eyes on it. It's going to happen in your lifetime. And so um, the early Christian group that were this messianic Jewish sect um, took the whole warnings of Jesus and understood them that it, it was very, very soon to come to pass, whatever it was, was going to uh, go on. Um, but then, of course, like we've come to understand, that whole topic of end-time theology, which is called, has been pushed, and you could say 2,000 years down the line, we're still waiting, but there are many who believed it already came to pass, and we can't cover that tonight, but at AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, basically that was when that old covenant, that old ending of that reign uh, came to an end. And you can either say a new covenant took over uh, in the context of um, where the Gentiles come in and also potentially everybody, the whole world, or as some say, that was it. It all came to an end. But we're not talking about that too much tonight. So um, uh, those that believed that he had risen, um, and there was those who went back to waiting for the Messiah once more. So that wasn't him. Okay, we'll go back to it. And yet there was a group who carried on believing that this was the Messiah, and, you know, we're going to trust whatever, whatever's going to happen. Um, but the Jews really struggled because if they had to believe that, um, that Jesus was actually God, that was a problem because, as I've already said, their Messiah wasn't a God. It was just purely a man that was going to be used by God to help deliver. And I hope you see the difference. I'm not saying he wasn't sent by God, but used by God, but he wasn't God himself. And that mattered. And you might think, well, heck, you know, what's going on here? But that was actually a crucial point in the struggle. And that's why ultimately the Christians split from Judaism. The, the, uh, the Jewish people carried on doing, waiting for their Messiah, etc. And the Gentiles took on believing that, that, that Jesus was the Christ. And then that took a particular uh, tra trajectory. And um, of course, we know that Paul, oh, well, it became predominantly Gentile as well. Uh, but Paul takes the message to the Gentiles because as far as Paul was concerned, and we'll talk about this in a minute, he was one of those who not only believed that he was the Messiah for the Jews, he believed he was also God incarnate. And therefore, this made a world of difference. It wasn't just the Jewish world. It meant the whole world. So you see how the two things have been put together there. Okay. So um, there were two groups. 
You could say that there was the, and I, I hate this phrase, but it's just the truth, the Pauline, or is it the Pauline Christians, because they were of Paul. So if you ever hear the word Pauline or Pauline, ugh, isn't it a weird, weird name? It meant they were followers of Paul. And there was this other group of Jewish Christians, um, those that believed that the Messiah had come and those that believed he hadn't, right? And sadly, from the year 70 to, the, to 135, the ones who believed he had come were classed as heretics and uh, they were persecuted and really treated pretty, pretty badly. Um, now, this is where I want to go with this, and uh, I hope it's making sense so far, but the term son of God was going to become something very, very different, and it would become to mean the divine. And I find this a wonderful little journey because, again, we're not telling you what to believe or whatever we say, and you have to come to the conclusion, who do you say that I am, right? Um, and Paul definitely believed that Jesus was not just um, uh, an emissary of God or, you know, just a, a, a used by God, but he was actually God incarnate as God. And uh, we also know that, um, that John, the, in the Gospel of John, felt that same way. And that's why that, the other Gospels do not give any credence at all to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God at all. It's, ne it's never mentioned. But in John he does, and um, it, it, it's really quite remarkable. And I'll, I'll try and touch on it a little bit as, as we go along here. Um, but, uh, right, hang on, where, I am, where am I? Mm. So Jesus never called himself God or Son of God. He tended to call himself the Son of Man. That was his phrase, I am a, I'm the son of man. And in fact, we've talked before about the fact that it used to be demonic ep uh, episodes that used to say, hey, son of the living God. And he would say, shut up or whatever. He'd quieten them down because he did not ask for any title like that. He was actually quite, I was going to say happy with being Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man and he was fulfilling that, that role of, uh, as a man. But it was certainly considered um, that he had very, a very special relationship with God. And we can see in the story of the transfiguration uh, in Matthew 17, if you, if you want to look at it later, that when he takes his disciples up the mountain and uh, there's this incredible moment where he, he, he rises off the ground and, and he, he shines with light and Elijah turns up, Moses turns up. You know, you'd have to say that there's something quite special about this person. That's if this happened. I'm just going on, on, on record. This is what it says happened. And uh, so there was much credibility given to Jesus as somebody who had a very special relationship with God. Because you're not going to have Elijah or Moses turn up, are you? If you were down the pecking order of, of the hierarchy... Because to the Jews, Elijah and Moses, come on, they're the biggies. So the very fact that he's mixing with the, the big boys was a great credibility um, with these, uh, with, with these uh, prophets. And then, like I said, Paul very much takes up the, um, the message 
that no, Jesus isn't, doesn't just have a special relationship with God. He's actually one with God and actually God incarnate. Because as you start to read what Paul begins to say, uh, he talks about um, the Father and the Lord Jesus uh, through whom all things are. So he's not just talking about the Father or God. He's saying the Father and the Lord Jesus, all things come through them. So the two with Paul of hand in hand, you see what I mean? So there's, there's very much that going on. But the reason why I'm taking the time to do this is because I don't want any of you to get the idea. It was just a foregone conclusion at, as, as Jesus being God incarnate. Now, Paul says he, he was, um, uh, now he says the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory. John certainly had a, a, um, a wonderful revelation but it wasn't the thing because everybody was looking for the Messiah do you see the difference and I hope you get it and I'm not here to tell you that Jesus wasn't God incarnate but I'm telling you from the Bible they were looking for the Messiah very much so and that's why there was such a a, a problem at first now there was another little issue over, over Jesus because if you think about it Jesus who turns up in this period, and we've talked about it already, about how we, we, it was a, a many-God world. It wasn't a godless world that, that Jesus turned up in. I um, mean, there was just... And I, I, I can give you even stories that are in the New Testament that the Gospels use to talk about Jesus, uh, which are already in circulation about somebody else. That is fascinating. So, for instance, one of the, is it the, the and I might get this mixed up, but the Greek god, god Dionysus, Dionysius, he turned water into wine. He was the god of wine, and so he did it regularly. So when you have stories then of Jesus doing the same in his life, I'm not saying for a minute he didn't do it, but what I'm saying is it was a circulated understanding. This is what the gods do. So it was actually associating and giving credibility to the whole thing. And there's many stories like that, which... We could take a whole evening to do it, but I don't know whether anybody would be interested, but, but I, I find it fun. Anyway, but you see, gods were very much represented by Roman emperors and their courts. It was very high. It was lavish. It was powerful. It was dominating. It was cruel. It was uh, oppressive. That's what the gods were like. And so you get suddenly... This Jesus, who it's been suggested that potentially he could be God, not at all representing that type of thing. For one thing, he's, he's a Nazarene. He's from Nazareth in Galilee. Very much in the sticks, very much a quiet um, place. Uh, it's it said that in, in many ways that he, he had a very, very poor uh, background. Being the son of a carpenter wasn't particularly that good, you know. We, we're talking about just very, very regular, normal, uh, normal human uh, experience. Yet, somebody's saying about Jesus that not only potentially is he being used by God, but God is actually 
in him and he's dwelling in him. And what he did, it gave the people hope that if that's the case, it, the same could happen to me. Now, isn't that lovely? I mean, that thrills me to bits because it's like the whole thing is getting turned on its head, but not because of a potentially a divinity, but just that Jesus was willing to be a peer, not in power and might, but just I'm here and I'm willing to be filled with a power that will allow me to, to do things. Now, that's, that was wonderful in the time because it was a new idea. Um, and at the same time, even, and I mean, that's talking about when he was uh, uh, before his death, but the message then of Jesus as that's running through the churches after his death is how do we interpret who he is? How, how do we relate to God through Jesus? Who is he? Now, that brings me just to the thing that I wanted to focus on, and uh, yeah, I'm doing all right, is that if that's the case, and I'm going to keep reiterating, yes, Paul, without a doubt, associates Jesus with the divine and makes them one. So does John. And I'm going to uh, come uh, give you more information on that in a minute. But what I really want you to get is that most of the people just believed he was the Messiah. And so that there was a jump, if you see what I mean, to the next level of who do you say that I am? And um, we come to uh, basically uh, these two guys called Arius and Athanasius and the part of, you know, church history. And um, up to this point, even though there'd been this basic debate, is he just the Messiah or is he, the, is, is he one with God? Um, there wasn't actually any particular teaching that was going around the churches as to the actual nature of, of Jesus or Christ um, to any of the churches, basically. It was just free for all. You can believe what you want, which I find really quite encouraging. I like that. It suits me fine. Uh, I know some of you won't be happy with that. Um, and for, for about 200 years, this had been debated. And, um, you know, most, as I say, most of the Jewish uh, group had gone back to waiting for their Messiah and there was a few others who would carry on believing that he was, um, he was their Messiah. But once it had become a very powerful group, this Christian group, and we talked about it, you know, from, uh, from uh, Jesus' death to about 325 when Constantine uh, had his failing empire and he needed something to help him. That's when things very much changed. And um, the relationship then that Jesus had to God became incredibly important. And it came down to the two questions that we've already discussed a little bit uh, tonight. Was Jesus divine in the same way as God? And if he was divine, could he really be called human at all? Now, we might say, well, does it really matter? Well, you can imagine it does in the context of establishing a powerful um, situation. Because if you're going to make Christianity your, uh, your, your what's the word I'm looking for? State uh, religion, you are not going to settle for anything other 
than the top. And uh, so it was important that these uh, questions uh, were, were asked. Now, um, Athanasius, he was the one, I mean, there were fighting broke out, basically. There's nearly a split uh, right across the board in, in the church. And um, Athanasius used uh, a scripture in Proverbs where wisdom, and very much uh, in that whole thing of um, Proverbs, wisdom is basically seen as, as the word of God, Jesus. He's, wisdom is speaking. And um, it says this, uh, Yahweh created me when his purpose first unfolded before the oldest of his works. There you go. That's the scripture where basically it's been said that Jesus or wisdom or the Logos, the word of God, was right in the beginning with Jesus. This is before the incarnation, you see. This is before he was born. Right back in the beginning, he was with God. And before the oldest of his works, what was the oldest of his works but creation, the very star of everything. Now, John in the Gospels, who referred to this wisdom, like I've just said, is the Logos, which is the word, means word in Greek. Um, he saw Jesus as the eternal word of God. I'm basically saying, like it was in, um, in, in John, 1 John chapter 1, um, that um, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So you see, these are the, he's saying, come on, we've got it. This is our, our, um, evidence that this is the case but of course all the other gospels that have uh, Matthew, Luke and Mark um, are very much talking about Jesus as a man and really lifting up his humanity because of course it was part of the it was part of the deal and, and we'll see in a minute why um, so if Jesus was being referred to, the question was, was he a mere part of God's creation? Uh, and if so, if that's the case, if he's being created, can he be divine? Um, and then the fact that Jesus called God Father, just get this, I think it's great. Paternity implies that God was there first. And if God was there first, then Jesus came Second, and if, if Jesus came second, there weren't one and the same. You see, how these funny things, these are great, aren't they? Um, then, then, as I say, Arius, on the other hand, he focused on all the scriptures that supported Jesus being fully human. So the fight was on, and this split was imminent, and Constantine needed unity. <laughs> so we get the Council of Nicaea. In 325, and as simple as this, Jesus was declared to be fully divine and you could say it came down to a vote. Now that's quite weird and I know some of you are going to say, Chris, what are you doing to all that we believe? No, I'm just laying it on the table because when you look back, but I'm going to do what Anne said, go back and look forward rather than just looking back you will see how the whole thing has evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved and kept changing and kept changing until we get where we are today. 
Now, that doesn't make what Jesus was or what he did any less. But the very fact that he was only, create, only declared fully divine in 325 by the Council of Nicaea is actually very interesting. I find it just very interesting. Now, the term that was used is interesting. It was a non-scriptural term, and I can't pronounce it, but I'll have a go. Humusian. And the meaning of it was this, of one substance with the Father, official, equal with God. That's what that word means. And in that moment, God the Creator and Jesus the Redeemer were one and the same. Who was Jesus? He was the glory of God, made flesh. Glory meant ex perfect expression, the exact image but in, in, in flesh. So some people say, well, there was sort of no logic to any of that, but basically it didn't matter because Greek thinking took over and they decided that that's what they could get with. And remember, Greek and Roman um, philosophy was incredibly powerful and influential in that day. And so this is what we get. And it was therefore written into the creed. The creed was then accepted by the churches. And uh, Arius, the one who wanted Jesus uh, to be understood as fully human, uh, not only got excommunica excommunicated, but they were killed. Now, what I find interesting there is just the very point that you get to an argument over whether Jesus is divine or Jesus is human, and then you have a, a, a declaration one way or the other, and somebody ends up being excommunicated. Come on, think about it. Isn't that what's happened in religion since day one? And that's what's still going on in the world. So we end up with doctrines that if people won't accept them as truth, we then war, we excommunicate, we fight. And honestly, even in the context of our generation now, I've had conversations with people and when I've said, oh, I don't know if I believe, for instance, substitutional penal atonement. If you're talking to a fellow believer and you say to them, oh, well, I, I, I used to hold to that and I used to believe certain things, but I don't anymore. Most of the time, you don't get a nice, friendly, happy conversation. You're actually, you know, and, and oh, well, I don't know if I can talk to you anymore. And I don't know where that comes from. It should not exist. Because in essence, none of us know, really. I appreciate the, 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 the experience in our hearts and, and what we come to understand in our minds. But the truth is, none of us can actually say, we know, we know for certain. Are you, are you following me? So anyway, I got really quite sad at the fact that, you know, his followers were, uh, were excommunicated. Now, here's the thing. Eastern churches didn't accept it because they couldn't hack the questions of, for instance, the eternal becoming a human being. They, they just couldn't get their head around that. Had the transcendent God allowed himself to be a helpless baby... 
Now we see great, incredible humility and it's awesome. We, we say, oh, that's amazing. But there was a whole bunch who said, I, I ain't going with that. And uh, next one, have the eternal, the supreme, the God of all creation, had he been able to die, it, none of it made any sense. And then, of course, the final question that really comes up is the fact that why had God done any of this anyway? You know, why? So, East and West developed very different ideas about this, the Council of Nicaea. And don't you find it interesting that we as a, you know, the West and we're English and all this, that and the other, find that our faith is based in, Middle East, in a Middle Eastern cultural faith. I find that amazing, I really do. If you think about it, the three main religions of the world, there's Islam, there's the, uh, the Jewish faith, and there's Christianity, and they basically all stem from the same person, and that's Abraham. Now, Christianity, unfortunately, all got a bit messed up because it started in Abraham and then went through this incredible story of the covenant and then it detoured back into, into Judaism and ended up where it did. And we have been so affected by Judaism, sometimes you hardly know where one bit starts and the other bit ends. Islam starts with Abraham and in fact, believed for quite a while that the same God that they had was, um, was the God of the Jews and the Christians until Mohammed had his vision in 640-something. And all of a sudden, guess what? The Arabs, for the first time ever, have got their own scriptures, their own faith, and their own God. But it still stemmed from Abraham. But of course, the little... Little interjection there is Ishmael the son rather than Isaac the son, the son of promise. And so in the end, you get a doctrine and faith built because of just a different trajectory. And I mean, that's, I find that really quite interesting. So this is where the West went with that understanding that God had come down in human Jesus to save human beings from the original sin of Adam in Eden. Sin was in the blood and humans would die and go to hell if there wasn't a plan. So God sent the Son and I'll be a substitute for them. Now that sounds great. It really does sound great. And you know what? Sometimes I wish I could go back to that because it's so blooming simple. And yet there's so many flaws to it, so many problems with it. I won't allow myself anymore. But then on the other hand, I then start saying, okay, well, if I'm not going with that anymore, what am I going with? Because I've got to say, well, what, what does it mean for Jesus to be the divine? Now, let me just tell you what the Eastern bunch did. And, and uh, I find this really interesting because sometimes where I've got to now in my journey, I, all I want to do is sit in silence <laughs> because we've spent 40 years seemingly talking and I think oh yeah I can see why the eastern religions did what they did they thought we ain't gonna try and box this up and figure it out we're just gonna sit doesn't it sound inviting to you 
it started to be more inviting to me now than ever in my entire life. Because I think, yeah, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But the Eastern way that they went was this, that God would have become man even if Adam had never sinned because Jesus was the first deified human being and everyone could strive for this enlightened state by just being like him. Now, don't that sound much more inviting and nice? Now, Ant can sort me out later. He can lock me in, in my room if I need to be. But you see, I read, I read in a, a, a book somewhere, uh, and I can't remember where it was, but it said that basically the Western church, that it was a religion of talk. All it was was doctrine, 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 and they seemed to miss that very, very uh, simplicity of being one with it all. And that to me now is sounding very inviting. But anyway, um, so they get this thing sorted. And as I say, um, the creed was done and Jesus is declared divine. Um, but you think that that would resolve the problem. But you see, it didn't. Because were there now two gods? And of course, if the religion was monotheistic, you can't have two gods. And if they're exactly the same not one less than another, but exactly the same, it would mean that this would have to be explained somehow. Um, so what they did uh, was, again, come up. There was these bishops. One was called Basil. I remember that because I like Basil in my food. Basil, I can't remember the other names. Basil and... Do you know who they were? I should have written it down. I wasn't planning on saying this. But there was uh, these three bishops who got together and said, well, we've got to figure this out because it's, again... It was a, a doctrine of, of divinity of Jesus and God that was creating another problem. And it's terrible about how some of these things, you know. Anyway, uh, this led to a very powerful yet unbiblical uh, idea. Like I said, the word that, that came up before wasn't biblical, but they came up with it anyway, this humusian, whatever it was. So they came up with another unbiblical idea, and that's actually going to shock some of you, but some of you might already know, and it's the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity was unheard of. It just wasn't a thing. Um, and so what happened was these guys decided that this is how God was going to reveal himself to the world. It was going to be in three ways. It would be Father, which is paternal and, and, a, and, a, and a source of power, then, of course, there would be the Son, the Word of creation, or Jesus. And then, of course, there was the Holy Spirit, um, which was that experience, that divine presence that we could all experience in, in the world. Now, as I say, this created a stir, and this was quite hard to handle. Now, we'd say, well, it's not. We're all right. We can just swallow it. We're all right with it. Um, but you see, what was going on uh, was the... the they, they needed to be able to uh, grasp something, yet at the same time keep it powerful. Because we've got the whole, um, well, yeah, I would have to, uh, right. If you go back to the beginning and watch the development and the evolution of God, and you say, well, how does God evolve? He actually does. It's quite amazing. Because in the scriptures you find, and we've, we've covered this a little bit before, 
that they started off very much polytheistic, lots of gods, and then you have different experiences where uh, God reveals himself uh, to Abraham, then reveals himself to Moses, and reveals himself through the prophets. But each time, it's very, very interesting, the more monotheistic they become, get this, the further away God becomes because he becomes more holy he becomes more inaccessible he becomes more angry he becomes more and and get this one holy but remember holiness wasn't approachable it it sounds oh well holy great no holy you touch it you die you see it's so rather than as you come through it and this monotheistic god who through moses becomes yahweh you're actually finding that until Jesus actually arrives on the earth, he's become less and less accessible. He's become more scary. He's become more demanding. It really is quite awful. And yet we're looking and say, oh, well, this is great. You know, the children of Israel have gone from uh, idol worshippers to being just serving one God. But listen to this. When they decided then to serve serve just one God, they become absolute murderers because they have the prophets of Baal, you know, the the story with Elijah. And because Elijah proves that his God's the one that's right, he goes and slaughters 450 prophets of Baal. So what I'm trying to get at, becoming monotheistic and having this wonderful idea of this God who is transcendent and powerful and all amazing does something to them and it's making them murder everybody. Do you get me? And that's often what happens. Think about it even in the context of what you see with ISIS and I'm not getting political or anything like that, but what you see with those who ever believe that their God is the God, what happens? It doesn't turn out well, does it? Are you with me? So you see, for me, where I'm getting to with this is... Where we come to if we are too dogmatic about certain things, we actually become so intolerant that we're actually unbearable to live with. And what I'm glad of in my life over the last 15 to 20 years, that in my journey, I've become more accepting, I've become more inclusive, I've become more loving, I've become less just judgmental, not because I've got closer to, quote, the God who I am saying is the only thing and everybody else must bow down to me. It's actually because I've said, do you know what? If all this is right, it brings us all together. It doesn't push us apart. And now the hardest thing is when you have a label of, quote, Christian church, when you talk like this, you are not being faithful to what your roots are. But what I'm saying is, hang on a minute, our roots got messed up. Our roots got messed up because certain people messed with things for power, for glory, for empire, in order to control. And then you end up with something that does not resemble remotely what Jesus came to do. Now, where it gets hardier is, does it matter whether he was divine or not? See, I would say, no. Can somebody actually have a relationship with the Almighty, the Supreme, or whoever, what, universe, whatever you want to call it, 
without understanding Jesus as divine. Now, the reason why I say that is because I bring you back to the, 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 what I said about the woman. She only knew that in her head, he was the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. But she said, you're the Jewish Messiah. That'll do. And she was healed. Do, do, do you see my point? And so, the unknowable God was going to be known to his creation through what was called, the word is emanations, expressions. And so we have the Trinity, which is handleable, isn't it? But, you know, it was made up by men, but we've, there you go, it's there. But then, of course, Kabbalah does the same, the Jewish Kabbalah, but it's got 10 emanations. Hinduism's got about 500 <laughs> emanations. But basically what it is is showing that God cannot be contained in, in a neat theory or a system. There's got to be ways that this God who is out there can actually be made here. Do you get me? And um, that's that bit. That, that's, that's, I think I've, I've done there. Um, so how I was going to finish off was basically Abraham is seen as a pioneer right? Even I've had to deal with this because in my head and from my upbringing, Abraham was just always a Christian sort of thing from, from the moment, you know, well, he was just a Christian. No, he wasn't. He was, he, he was just this person who had all sorts of influences from Ur of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia. He then ended up in Canaan, worshipping El, the, the, the chief god of the uh, Canaanites. He then has an encounter with something but at that time he wasn't called Yahweh because Yahweh only came on the scene with Moses so we've got a really funny thing like this but what we do know is that with Abraham he was a pioneer and what he kept doing was keeping going and he didn't stick to just one understanding but he was a pioneer that carried a covenant to all nations it wasn't just uh, the, the, the Israelites. It wasn't just, you know, one group. It was to the nations. It, it was in you and your seed will all the children of the earth be blessed. But who was his seed? Often it's seen as um, Isaac or whatever, but it was Christ. He was the seed. And all those who are born of faith, you see, the moment we talk about faith, again, it becomes something quite specific, and I'll, I'll go back to the beginning to this. Faith is not actually a belief, but faith is what's left when all your beliefs have been blown out the window. And I think that that's a, a very important thing. And what you have with Abraham is a person who was willing every step of the way to have his beliefs blown out of the window and be given something brand new and to embrace it and to keep on going. And that's how he came to, to the situation he was in. So is that all I want to say? I think it is. Yeah, I think so. Uh, how did we get here then? Between um, the, the Old Testament journey and then we've got Jesus, uh, John, Paul, Constantine, Augustine, which I'll tell you what, you need to read about Augustine. He was a monkey. He really, oh, he, was, he wasn't nice at all. I mean, his attitude ultimately 
towards women, um, and I'm not a pro, what do you call it? Uh, I'm not really that, but I, I do find that when you read that the whole thing of original sin ultimately made it so that women were treated with such uh, unkindness. It, it, it's awful. All because, you see, women were bearing the children and the children had the sin gene. Therefore, women were just wicked. And also because he believed that Eve in the garden uh, was what women always were, you know, really wicked and temp tempting and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's really sad. But isn't it awful then that a man of that caliber, and I mean, he had a, a, a 10-year-old um, uh girl who he wanted to marry and it was all a bit weird and nasty he was the one who who uh in, invented let's call it the doctrine of original sin which the western church has adopted and made it their um you know main main theory and you think how could somebody uh who was so messed up come up well I suppose that's it isn't it it was so messed up he came up with something so bad but anyway I was saying that through all these people then of course you get Anselm you get uh, Luther you get Calvin and by the way Luther was great he had his wonderful reformation but he, was, he, he didn't like Jewish people and he, he made sure that he got rid of them and it wasn't nice it was still all very horrible and you know Luther came to this great revelation that, you know, the just shall live by faith, but meanwhile, he wouldn't accept Jews and he was going to get them killed. See what I mean? Awful. Anyway, then of course, I thought it was amazing that we've got, like I said a, a while ago, we've got the introduction of like the, the, the Islamic faith, about 640. You've got Luther, about 1500. And then of course, you get to now when you've got the progressives, as they're called, all starting with a different idea of what it really means. Oh, could, we've, I've missed one out. 1830, Joseph Smith <laughs> and the Mormons. He came up with one, you know, he found the plates at the bottom of his garden and dug them up. And, oh, it's a wonderful story, that. What I'm trying to get at is that all the way along, there is this attempt, this quest to understand the divine and everybody's had a go and we're still trying and we're still wanting to come to an understanding. But my understanding in the context of Jesus is this. Was he the last word of the Father? Was he the last word? Was he the last word? I, I struggle. Or are we saying that there's nothing more to come? There's nothing more to be said. There isn't any greater revelation. I don't mean greater revelation than Jesus, but more to be said. It's like saying there's nothing, no more revelation that can come. And I just don't think that that is true. I think the revelation of what has happened this last um, probably a hundred years in the context of us understanding the heart of the Father and the unconditional love of the Father is another revelation. And I believe we've got it. We're, we're, we're attempting to understand it and outwork it. And um, um, I think there has to be a car boot sale of, of uh, ideas every 500 years. And I think we're in one at the moment. And I didn't add, isn't it interesting that you see at the turn of the century or wherever, you get atheism coming in, being introduced. Another idea, you might say, well, that's not an idea. Yeah, it is. It's an idea that there isn't a God. 
So that comes in to what? Challenge all the ideas that are going on. And we live in a world where all the time these incredible uh, discoveries are being made. And uh, I mean, we never, we, we don't, there's never been a time where we haven't got so much at our disposal, disposal to know. And on that basis, I actually believe that more is to come and we're going to get greater revelation and it's going to be absolutely amazing. So I don't need Jesus to be my uh, saviour from my, quote, sin anymore uh, in that sense. I needed him to remind me of my father. Do you get me? It's different. And that is more glorious. It's more wonderful. It's more beautiful. And um, the reason why I started at the beginning by, by saying that basically there are people out there who believe it's that Jesus was only for Israel only is because he, in one sense, you could go down that line and say it makes quite a lot of sense. He came, he died in order to deliver the, the, uh, the Jewish people from the law that they were under because the question is, were we ever under the law? Question, were we ever under the law? The law was given to the Israelites, not to us. But that's it, I'm done and uh, I'll let Anth come and uh, dig me out. All right. Ah! <laughs> So did you catch that? Um, I think all I would say um, on that is what we're trying to drive at is this, this search is not an attempt to complicate things. It's actually an attempt to simplify things. But sometimes to simplify things, you have to look at the complications. <laughs> Because if you don't realise there are complications, you won't realise that there's a need to simplify it. <clears throat> and, and probably what we're trying to say is, in where does Jesus fit and who is Jesus, is one of the greatest complications that we deal with is the imposition of history and time and culture on the story. And, um, you know, for example, um, for 250 years from 580 6 BC um, to three somethings, the children of Israel were engaged in what was known as the Babylonian captivity. <clears throat> and uh, the predominant influences on them were Babylonian and Persian, which of course Persian being the present day um, Iran. And um, what was interesting is that <clears throat> up to that time, in the Jewish mind, there were only two forces there was Yahweh and human will. They were the two forces in the earth. Um, uh, God and man, however they constructed, there was still a basic understanding of that until, until the captivity in Babylon when they were introduced then through the Persian thinking to, to something called Zoroastrian thinking, which was the Persian idea. And um, that's what introduced the idea that there were, it was not, it was not, human will and Yahweh, it was Yahweh and an opposite evil power. So, so we get the introduction of thinking that then drives us to the idea that there are these two equal and opposite spiritual powers that are at war with each other and now all of a sudden we've introduced something other than man and God. We've now introduced God and devil and somewhere in there man has to find his place uh, and then even how, even how the, the 
uh, Jews of the time perceived eternity and afterlife was greatly influenced by that Persian thinking that, that began to create a lot of the pictures and images and concepts that we now know as, as the Christian version of hell, which of course as that came through with other influences like Dante in the Middle Ages, we, uh, we, we had this fierce, vicious, tormenting prison that went on forever and forever and forever. And um, but my point in all this is that, that what we're trying to do is sift through those influences to say, not just who is Jesus, but where is Jesus in this? Really, will the real Jesus please stand up? Because as we said last week, which I think is just a wonderful uh, image when we talked about this story of these two guys going from Jerusalem to Emmaus and the risen Christ turns up and they don't know who he is. So it's only been a few days and they, they don't spot him. And as I said, I don't think their eyes were blinded by God. I think our perceptions of who we think Jesus should be, i.e. Messiah, Jewish Messiah, blind our eyes to then the experience of the reality of seeing the real Jesus. So they're going down the road, giving all this stuff out, and he's actually there with them. And of course then, you know, as, as we looked at the story last week, he begins to talk to them and begins to show them that there is this, there is this pure thread that goes through the whole story. It says he began at the beginning and began to show them Christ in all the scriptures. Which, which means that you can go through all the scriptures and, and never be aware of actually the real thread of what this is all about in the context of God and humanity. Uh, and of course, where that brought us to was, was in that journey, um, it says he would have gone further, but they constrained him to stay with them. And of course, we made clear, and of course, this relates to what Chris has been saying and why we're bringing this stuff, that that even now we can, we can constrain the revelation to stay where we're comfortable being. You know, this, this is our safe space, so why don't you come into our safe space? And I find that the height of arrogance, that even in our spirituality, we would say to God, you have to stay in our safe space. This is our safe space about what we like about about our beliefs on Jesus. This is our safe space of what we like about our beliefs on God. We want you to say in our safe space, but because the pressure is, he would have gone further, but they wouldn't let him. So our heart in this is to say, we let you. You know, where is this further than this? What I do know, it's further than the place that we associate with comfort. Because that was the whole point, you see. Stay here with us. This is where we live. This is our house. So we have to have a willingness to go beyond the place of comfort, which is what Q is, is really all about. And then, of course, there was this issue of um, um, he then went in with them and, and they broke bread and it says then their eyes were open and they realised who it was and at that moment he disappeared from their sight. And the way I explained that was he disappeared before they could take a, take a photo. So they had no, they couldn't pull out the mobiles and take a selfie of that this is us and Jesus. Uh, there was no photographing the moment because the moment you photograph it, you capture that moment and then Jesus is forever the Jesus that you saw in the moment that you took the picture in that particular revelation, which means then you've not letting him be anything else other than the revelation that you had. And, and I feel if there was a great error 
in the way I was raised is that uh, we, I was a Pentecostal, we took a picture of Jesus. And uh, we didn't have an icon like the Eastern religions, the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox. Or we didn't, we didn't have a, a, an idol like the, the Catholics and we didn't sit Jesus on Mary's shoulder. But we sure, as, we sure as heck had a picture of Jesus. And lo and behold, if you contradicted that, because we pulled out with our words and our doctrine the picture of Jesus. This is, we were with him, we took this picture. And, and Jesus is then forever frozen in time. But only frozen in the time that we trapped him in, which was the one we kept him in. And history has consistently taken the divine and tried to take a picture and trap the divine in that moment of history. Rather than saying, you don't take pictures of the divine, this, this is something too big and too precious and too glorious. And in our arrogance, we cannot take a picture and say, this is our Jesus. We have to say, we remember how Jesus was then, but when we saw that, he kind of disappeared. And so all the time, we're looking for the Jesus of now. We're looking for the one that joins our journey from our Jerusalem to our Emmaus, that makes himself part of our conversation and then makes us part of his conversation. The end objective being that we have that moment that we say, we recognize, we see, we, we, we just saw the divine, we just saw Jesus, we just saw whatever is the thing in that moment that says to us, that was it. And of course, you know, what it says about them, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us? They got severe heartburn because there's one or two reasons I would say on that one. One you could say it was, it was from the passion of fire in their hearts. The other you could say is because they had terrible indigestion because now Jesus didn't fit the box they wanted him to fit in. And I think, I think there's two kinds of heartburn in the church. There's the heartburn that says, oh, this is really exciting. And some of you have that. And then there's the heartburn that says, I've got indigestion from all of this. I just can't, because we can't digest it and taking in, because it, it, it's working against the rigidity that we have. So uh, thanks to Chris for, for filling all that in. She, she's, she is so much more committed than me to research and stuff. Most of my research comes from listening to what she's researched and then... Uh, and then and then rephrasing it and delivering it to try and take some of the glory. So, so I really appreciate um, what Chris has done. Then I hope this is helpful because it's just building it around. But like I say, I'm just saying what I say to say that we have we are trying to avoid taking the picture in that moment and trapping Jesus in a photo album and saying, Do you know what? We go on that that he is he is with us. He is in us. We are in him, we are with him, and this thing is still emerging and growing. And in different ways, in many different ways on our journey, we get that moment where suddenly we see, we see something, we catch sight of something, we, we, we don't take a picture of it, we grab the experience and say, right, we're going to go further. And next time, instead of saying, stay where we're comfortable, we'll say, well, we don't know where you're going, but but we'll take the risk and we'll go. Which is why, for me, at the root of this is the story of Abraham. Because God says, I'm going, I'm going somewhere. Do you want to come? And uh, he says, yeah, I'll come. Of course, he gets stuck in Aaron. 
and that causes all kinds of problems. He has 20-odd years there. But then finally realizes, well, it's probably the best idea is just to go wherever he's going. But he didn't know where there was. He, he, he just knew there was a there and he was being asked to go. And I, I believe what we're trying to do is get a hold of this, that, that, that the same divine who is recorded of speaking that to Abraham, the same divine who turned up on this journey is the one who turns up for us and says, I'm going somewhere, do you want to come? See, but if we've made that God rigid, he's actually not going anywhere, which is why we said, well, the whole point is we, you know, we live, we accept Jesus, we die, we go to heaven. But God is actually saying to us, I'm going somewhere, do you want to come? And that's where our hearts have got to be. Yeah, why not? Not sure where it is. But we're prepared not to pull you into our comfort zone. We're prepared to go with you on the adventure and on the journey. And really that's the heart of, 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 of what Q is about, what my heart in Q is about. Why we're trying to create an environment that that can be possible and acceptable and, and accessible to people. That's really our heart and that's really our desire. So I hope you've been helped again and a little bit something's dropped in your spirit and heart. So Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. We are grateful um, to be alive and for the opportunity to, to wrestle with these things. My one regret is that um, I'm as old as I am now. I'd like to have another 60 years to crack at this, but um, I'm thankful for what we've got and I just pray that we'll, you'll help us to bring to many people as early as possible in their journey, these wonderful truths, so that they can hear you say to them, I'm going somewhere, do you want to come? And believe that that is really the gospel and where Jesus fits in all that and the emerging story, we thank you that that's just helping us to get a handle and a, a grasp on this in Jesus' name. All right, be blessed. Good? Perfect. Thanks for that.